Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. You'll hear Butch Carter, former Raptors coach on the departure of Kawhi Leonard. Duff Conacher will join us from Democracy Watch on a federal cabinet minister's neighbor and supporters being named as judges. The Montreal Economic Institute says carbon taxes have to be redone. And from the Democratic Republic of Congo, Ebola is gathering momentum in West Africa. Dr. John Cassidy, earthquake expert, Canadian, will talk to us about the quakes in California. And is there anything to be concerned about as far as British Columbia is concerned? And you'll hear privacy lawyer David Fraser from McKenna's Cooper in Halifax on the legislation that allows police officers to come to your home within two hours of you having driven and demand a breathalyzer. Great deal coming up on the podcast today. I hope you enjoy it. As I reflexively do each time that I wake up in the middle of the never-never zone, I grab the phone and I started looking at news headlines and there it was. Kawhi was headed for the Clippers and so is Paul George from the Thunder in that huge trade that the Thunder engineered or the Clippers engineered with the Thunder. And so the question became, did the Raptors ever really have a chance of retaining Kawhi? If the Thunder had decided to not grant Paul George his wish to be traded to the Clippers, would Kawhi have re-signed with the Raptors? There's so many questions that are being asked. And joining us on the program is the former coach of the Toronto Raptors, Butch Carter. Butch, thank you very much for the time. And I just feel like somebody poured a bucket of ice water on my head after 2.15 this morning when I saw that headline. The the reality is that um, these things on free agency and the NBA get... uh, are a little scary. Um, they've grown more drama. You know, it's really like a soap opera uh, this time. And so I imagine this was Kawhi's plan all along. And I don't know why that should surprise anyone. Um, as I told someone, I thought that the more that the Raptors won, the easier it would be for him to go. And um, and he's done that. So, you know, in my mind, he's Jon Snow um, in Game of Thrones. Uh, he didn't want to be king of the north, and he's just going to float off into his own sunset. <laughs> well, you know, he he brought so much to to the team and to the city and the country. And if we go back to when uh, Masai Ujiri made the trade for Kawhi, uh, a lot of people, knowledgeable basketball people, were telling us then it's a one-year close-out-his-contract deal. Yeah, he, I mean, Kawhi made the request uh, – for San Antonio to trade him. They requested they ship him to L.A. so he could go back home. And, of course, they didn't want him in the Western Conference and have to face him. They thought they were getting fair value in the trade and shifting to Toronto. Um, the only bad part about the trade was Masai did not, was not forthright when he met with uh, DeMar DeRozan in Las Vegas about there was a potential to even trading. Um, and that's part of Masai's growth process. Uh, I imagine next time he'll deal with that better, as hard as it may be. Uh, he'll deal with it better. But um, I think everyone knew at the time. And for all of Canada, the trade worked out tremendously when you walk away with the Larry O'Brien trophy. And everyone involved, Kawhi, Danny Green, uh, Gasol, all the guys who came to help uh, the Toronto Raptors accomplish that. It's, it's really an outstanding feat. What's the significance to the team of Danny Green leaving as well? Well, one, you know, uh, the Raptors were <clears throat> were paying a penalty for being over the cap. Danny Green, uh, Fred Van Fleet saved uh, the playoff series because Danny didn't play very well except for, I believe, Game Four where he made the the uh, six three point shots. Um, so I don't think you lose out on anything. I just think. Um, at the end of the day, it's going to be a situation. Hopefully it won't be as bad as Cleveland when LeBron left. The only issue right now is I would think that the Raptors need to be healthy, and hopefully they will be. But losing the professionalism of Kawhi Leonard, the ability to take your best player and put him on the other team's best player is unmeasurable. It's unmeasurable what it does, how it sets the tone, um, 
it was just really a wonderful ride uh, during the whole year, and we all have to admit we're going to miss the guy. Did uh, do you expect that Masai Ujiri has had a contingency plan or a trade in place or in mind just in case Kawhi chose to leave to Toronto? Could could yeah, we could we see the Raptors engage in a major trade for a young Canadian NBA star? Maybe. Well, I think right now they could move guys on one-year deals, and you know that Wiggins has been offered. Uh, the question is on Wiggins is not his talent, but his motor. Um, bring him home uh, may help. I would think it might help. I would imagine that Minnesota would give him away. Um, but you'd have to give up one of your other assets. So it, I think if I was Masai, I would take a day or two and think about it. And then knowing him, he'll get back to work. Um, he has a very good team. He does not have a great team because he does not have a you know top five all-star. And that's really what he lost. He might have lost he probably lost one of the top three players uh, in the league as far as being two-way players, great on defense mm-hmm. and really good on offense. Is Canada more attractive now to NBA players after Kawhi's positive experience here? It will be more attractive because of his positive experience and how they manage uh, him with his injury situation. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not just the players. As I always told people, you, they grossly underestimate the uh, the support team that goes with the player. A lot of the support teams have not been happy in Canada. They don't like kilometers. They don't like milking bags. They've never seen red or green or blue money. Uh, it's an unfortunate part of what goes on. I think Masai gets around it by taking some of the African players who are extremely talented. Um, and he's got currently has three on the team and Gasol from Spain. So He's found a way. He's had a unique background. His unique background allowed him to manipulate the system. And then when he had a chance to grab a top player who everyone said was injured, but fortunately for Raptors was not, uh, they made the most out of it. So now we, uh, we're already hearing that the Lakers and the Clippers are the cream of the crop in the NBA. NBA. That's what we're hearing. So each team has a chance of going deep into the playoffs and likely one of them to the finals. Maybe the Clippers will be favored over the Lakers. Is that good for the league to have that kind of power concentrated in one market? Well, it's the second largest market outside of New York. And you got two teams in it. But this is what you have to remember. Everyone they're talking about in those two teams has a serious injury history. You look at Davis, you look at LeBron, you look at Kawhi, you look at Paul George. Those guys have missed a serious amount of games due to injury, and and especially with Kawhi's age. So I don't think we should get ahead of ourselves. Um, We still, I don't believe that by the time Kawhi's contract is up, I don't believe he plays in 60% of the games. Um, He missed 20-something games this last year. Um, and that is a considerable amount of the cap. Um, but I think every year on his contract, he'll miss more and more games. I think Kawhi went home and he signed the, the, the four-year contract because he knows his body's not right. It was a it was a real disservice to the whole process by Canadian media suggesting he sign a two-year deal. Um, it really was more like a slap in the face. The guy wins a championship for you and you suggest that he signs a two-year deal, um, not especially when everybody knows what his physical condition is. These are the same guys that were making comments negatively around uh, his load management. So I think also, you know, those kind of comments during the whole year hurt the whole process. And as tight a ship as Masai tries to run, he can't control the media, especially when the media is controlled by the ownership groups, Bell and Rogers. Um and I think that in the camp, in Kawhi's camp, that they would not forget that. That the media questioned his load management, they questioned, uh, and then for it to be so insulting to say that he should sign a two-year contract with, let's think of the value creation by winning a championship. I believe the Raptors are the third most valuable, fourth most valuable team in the NBA now. That would put them over $3 billion. And... Masai or Kawhi cannot get fair market value for the incremental uh, valuation that they've uh, 
done for the owners. So it's just, you know, a tough situation. So my final question for you is, um, where do you think the Raptors fit in the East now going into this season? Where do you expect them to, to compete? What position do you expect them to compete for? Uh, you want home court advantage in the playoffs, so you want to be in the top four. Right, so, you know, Brooklyn made two big deals, but the reality is um, Kyrie can be a distraction, and Russell, their best scorer last year, is gone. Um, Kevin Durant doesn't play this year. Philadelphia changed their team drastically, moving Jimmy Butler. I would not have paid Harris $150 million. He's not a two-way player. Al Horford is a consummate professional. It's a great addition for Philadelphia. Milwaukee will play the whole season angry because of what Toronto did to them in the playoffs. Um, and that loss, playoff loss in that series is going to force them to mature. They brought everyone else back. So I would look for them to be very, very good. Indiana added a piece or two. I would expect them to be better. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, the Raptors, they still have to do load management um, with Kyle, but I, I would look for them to be very good. But at some point before the trade deadline, I imagine Masai will try to get some kind of asset uh, in place. And Minnesota really wants to get rid of Wiggins, and you know that will be one of his options. But. There are 29 other teams in which for him to do a deal with, and he's only done deals that are drastically in the favor of the Toronto Raptors, so hopefully he'll do another one. Well, thanks very much for the time. Really appreciate talking to you. Thank you for allowing me. All the best. At T.O. Butch Carter is his Twitter handle, at T.O. Butch Carter. Former coach of the Toronto Raptors, joining us on the Roy Green Show. Quite a story uh, earlier this week, and it's, it's still quite a story. And that is that five of the last six judges, federal appointments as judges in the province of New Brunswick, right, five of the last six, have a relationship with one federal cabinet minister who also happens to be from New Brunswick, and that's Dominic LeBlanc. And uh, one of... Minister LeBlanc's family members, or related to him anyway in some way, was among the uh, individuals appointed to the bench. And uh, it also included three lawyers who had been of assistance to the minister in paying off the debt that he incurred when he ran for the liberal leadership in 2008. So... A lot to talk about here, and joining me to get at that is Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, adjunct professor of law and politics at the University of Ottawa. His books are Canada First and More Canada First. Duff, thank you uh, for taking the time, and uh, let's start with this. Should we be surprised that Dominic LeBlanc's neighbor and supporters were appointed as judges? Uh, no, I don't think so, unfortunately, because the appointment system allows for these kind of patronage appointments to be made still, despite uh, Justin Trudeau and the Liberals' repeated claim that the system is completely merit-based now. They haven't made the changes needed to ensure that uh, appointments are, are all merit-based and nonpartisan and impartial themselves. Now, is this a, a series of events that have gone on? Because the focus right now on, is on these six cases, or five, five cases, um, but I, I gather that this isn't the first time this has happened, and certainly not with the Liberals in power. No, it's not, and uh, the Globe and Mail did a big study of the Liberals looking at donors and found that of judges who have been appointed federally by the Liberals since 2015, uh, who have made donations to political parties, 90% of them have donated to the Liberal Party and only 10% to the opposition parties. So, you know, that's a clear pattern of uh, the Liberals pointing supporters um, of the party. And they're allowed to because the appointment system is still open to political interference. And the, uh, the appointment not just of judges, but also of 
watchdogs who enforce key good government rules that apply to cabinet ministers is also wide open to uh, cabinet control, uh, even more so than for judges. The Liberals have chosen the Ethics Commissioner, the Lobbying Commissioner, the Information Commissioner, the Chief Electoral Officer, uh, and will be choosing, uh, have chosen a new Auditor General as well. All these uh, bodies are quasi-judicial. They're, they're essentially enforcing laws like judges do. They're just not called judges. Uh, and the Cabinet in all of those uh, appointments controlled the process completely. It was very secretive. Was actually dishonest in some cases where they misled opposition parties and so the system is wide open still to patronage and cronyism despite uh, Trudeau and the Liberals repeated claims that they have stopped and changed the process to stop it. Now isn't this also against the law? Isn't there a, a, a law that states that if you're going to, for example, if you're going to uh, appoint a, an ethics commissioner you have to do that in tandem with the opposition parties and they have to be in on the process? Well, we'll see. Democracy Watch is currently in the Federal Court of Appeal challenging the appointment of the new Ethics Commissioner and the new Lobbying Commissioner. And we hope that the Federal Court of Appeal will will uphold uh, what should be a rule, which is that you can't choose your own judge. You cannot be choosing someone who will enforce a law that applies to you, especially uh, given that uh, at the time that the Trudeau Cabinet handpicked the new Ethics Commissioner and Lobbying Commissioner, both commissioners were investigating situations involving Trudeau and other cabinet ministers. <laughs> so essentially, they, you know, right in the middle of investigations, they chose the judge who would rule on the investigation. And you know, everyone would like to do that. You know, everyone would choose the best well, sure. as their judge if they could. And it can't be allowed. And we hope the federal court of appeal will rule that uh, it was illegal, it was biased, and a, a conflict of interest. And that will hopefully lead to a change uh, to the whole appointment system in the future. Now, how does this compare to what happened during the Harper years? Well, uh, there was also a pattern of the Harper government appointing uh, judges who were donors and also uh, handpicking uh, the uh, new commissioners. Um, the Harper government did make some improvements. They did make the lobbying commissioner slightly more independent and the ethics commissioner slightly more independent. Uh, there wasn't any evidence that they didn't consult with opposition parties when choosing the lobbying commissioner and ethics commissioner, which is why Democracy Watch didn't challenge them in court, because there was lots of evidence that the Liberals did not consult with the opposition parties, which they're supposed to do. Uh, because, you know, these key positions, like the ethics commissioner enforces ethics rules for all federal politicians, not just for the cabinet ministers. And so that's... Uh, uh, Harper did make some choices of people who turned out to be lapdogs, both in terms of lobbying commissioner and ethics commissioner, uh, but at least did um, consult with opposition parties before choosing the people to fill those roles. In terms of judges, though, the, the Conservatives did have a pattern also of appointing uh, judges who were uh, donors predominantly to the Conservative Party. So it's a problem at the federal level historically, currently and also in every province this problem exists except Ontario which has changed the system to really restrict the power of cabinet ministers to choose whoever they want as judges. You know it's it's particularly disturbing when we talk about federal judges being appointed through what appears to be cronyism. Uh, you uh, you did something for me or you provided service to me or you helped pay off my debt over a significant period of time and therefore you're going to be elevated to the bench. You're going to be a judge. You'll be a judge for life. These are, uh, these are people who make significant and precedent-setting decisions and should be there on merit, not because they're somebody's pal who's helped them out. And I, I don't know why we put up with this. I look at a, at a headline in the Globe and Mail from the 24th of uh, April this year, so fairly recent, but never Nevertheless, it's telling the PMO vets potential judges with private liberal database. Yeah, they actually check whether they are donors. And, and you call them federal judges. But a lot of people don't realize um, they're federally appointed judges, but uh, and they serve on the federal court, some of them. But the federal government also appoints the upper level uh, court judges in every province. And that was done historically so that a, a provincial government would not be able to choose the judges that sit on the Court of Appeal, the highest court in any province. 
in, in order to avoid uh, ruling parties putting in place their friends who would protect them from any accountability from anyone suing. Um, but the problem is, uh, if the federal liberals are choosing it, it, you can also sue the federal government in provincial court. And uh, then you end up with a court of appeal, uh, facing court of appeal judges that may have been chosen by the ruling party that you're suing. <laughs> so um, they, it's enormous power that the federal it government is. has to really determine law enforcement in the country. First of all, choosing the RCMP commissioner. Uh, and then also judges, and uh, uh, judges not just at the federal level, but also at the upper court level in, in the provinces. And the Conservatives broke a promise in 2006 to uh, establish an independent uh, public appointments commission to check the power of cabinet. And it's unfortunate. The Liberals came in and uh, said they were going to change the system and spun it and spun it, and the media generally bought it, unfortunately. The Liberals took their first year in office, and they said, we're changing things, we're changing things. That's why we're not making any appointments. And then they suddenly announced, we've changed things. Now we're going to start making appointments. And they only made a few small changes that do not make the system uh, entirely merit-based and have gone on, as, as you've mentioned, and uh, as I was citing to the Global Mail research showing that they appointed a lot of donors to the Liberal Party. So uh, voters don't like this and have made it very clear to all the parties they don't like it. But it seems like each party that gets in power wants to retain this power and uh, to appoint whoever they want to enforce laws. And it's extremely dangerous to our democracy. And it's something that uh, we in media have to remind Canadians is going on because ultimately we can't we can't afford this. We literally cannot afford this happening in our democratic institutions. We can't have uh, a headline again, PMO vets potential judges with private liberal database. So we need a judge in name a place. And uh, so who's on our list here? Who's done good by our, well, by our party? Who's been positive for us? Oh, yeah. Joe over here has done a lot for us. Why don't we make him a judge? Yes, they also check with the local MPs in any province and the ministers who come from that province. And the Globe and Mail has reported that Dominic LeBlanc did take part in uh, decisions for four of these six judges. Uh, he did rec- he did step aside, recuse himself from the decision-making process for one of them, who is a relative of his. But the other four, who have donated a lot to his riding association, in, in the case of three of them, and in the case of the fourth one, uh, she and her husband bought a property from Dominic LeBlanc that, that is neighbors his property for $430,000 back in 2013. And uh, the woman uh, uh, who was appointed as, a chief, as chief justice of the New Brunswick uh, Court of Queen's Bench. Her husband also has donated to the Liberals and and to Dominic LeBlanc's personal leadership campaign to help him pay off his debt from that campaign back in 2008. And uh, so there's a lot of ties here. And, and the, the line in the Conflict of Interest Act is that you cannot be in even the appearance of a conflict of interest. And if you have that Uh, appearance of a conflict of interest. As a cabinet minister, you're not allowed to take part in decisions. And that's why Demarcy Watch has filed a complaint uh, and asked for an investigation uh, of this situation because our position is if Dominic LeBlanc did take part in these appointment decisions uh, for these four judges, then he did violate the federal ethics law. However, there's another twist. And that twist is we've filed the complaint with the ethics commissioner and he was handpicked by the Trudeau Liberals through a secretive, dishonest process. So we've asked him to pass it on to someone else uh, to investigate and rule on, someone independent of his office and independent of all political parties. Not only was uh, Dominic, not only was uh, Mario Dion's uh, handpicked by the Trudeau cabinet as ethics commissioner, but also a lawyer, his senior lawyer, is Dominic LeBlanc's sister-in-law. So, uh, do you have any uh, do you have any any sense that anything is going to come out of this? I mean, we're almost we're just over three months away from the federal election. What do you expect realistically to come out of out of out of Democracy Watch's calls? Well, pretty much all the facts are known in this situation, yeah. and we know what the law is as well. So, it doesn't take any time at all for the ethics commissioner to rule on it. Either he believes our position. Which is that there uh, is a conflict of interest here, an appearance of conflict of interest on the part of Dominic LeBlanc, and 
as a result, he uh, violated the law or he takes a different position. And if he takes a different position, then we'll have to challenge that ruling in court uh, you, because we'll be, uh, I, I disagree with it entirely. I think the, the appearance of a conflict of interest is clear. Yeah. Interesting that Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, sought to limit the PMO involvement in judicial appointments. I guess that went over like a lead balloon as well. Yeah, um, and it's another uh, case we're chasing after with the whole SNC level and the interference in law enforcement there by the Trudeau cabinet. And we have three complaints in to the ethics commissioner and the lobbying commissioner, and uh, also no reason why they can't be ruled on before the election as well. And it will be negligent for these commissioners to fail to rule on these cases because voters have a right to know were the laws broken or not in the commissioner's opinion. And uh, in all the cases, we'll be off to court if they say no, because it, the, the lines were clearly crossed in, in all these situations of SNC-Lavalin, the pressure put on the attorney general. And then also in this case, if Dominic LeBlanc did take part in these, uh, in these appointments. Good for us that we have you at Democracy Watch. We're trying. Chipping away slowly, but it's hard because the politicians write the rules for themselves and yeah. choose their own judges. Well, you, you so. pointed this out in a recent program that we aired with you, and it had to do with the lobbying rules where where politicians can decide, uh, have decided for themselves that they can take unethical trips. And I think the number was 75 of them did last year. Yes. And you pointed out that if they, if, they think, if they truly believe that doing this is incorrect, which it is, ethically compromised, which it, which it is, they can all vote to overturn that in one 24-hour period. Very simply. They could have, they could have done it years ago when it, when it was first highlighted. Uh, and year after year, there's about 75 of them, not always the same 75, that take the trips. And what's amazing is there's 338 MPs, and a majority of them have not ever taken a trip. And yet that majority is made to look bad by the minority of MPs who take these trips. But that minority is still a big number, isn't it? It is still a big number, but the majority should say, we, we should stop this because yeah. you're making us yeah. all look bad because yeah. it's MPs from all parties and no party can stand up and say they're better. All MPs from all parties do this. And you would think one of them would want to stand up I think and so. push to stop this, but none of them do. They all write the rules for themselves, choose their own pay level, their own perks and benefits, and they choose their own judges, and they all seem to be fine with it, all the parties. It's amazing. And, and yet, you know, the opposition parties want to be in power. We'll do something that upsets a vast majority of voters, acting unethically, acting dishonestly, acting secretly. And yet you, you, you just don't see parties standing up for this, and yet they say they want to be in power. To do what? To reward your friends and family members and supporters of your party? Who wants you in power to do that? That's what we've seen ever since Canada became a country. No, there's a word for that. It's called corruption. It is, and the system is corrupt. That's our slogan. has been our slogan for a long time. The system is the scandal yeah. because it actually allows and encourages dishonest, unethical, secretive, and wasteful behavior. Very disturbing. Duff, I always appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Thanks so much for the time today. Good to talk with you as well, Roy. Take care. Bye-bye. Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. You can go to their site, democracywatch.ca. And you can find out what they're doing and what they're trying to get done, Democracy Watch. And it is corruption. And if it's allowed to go on, regardless of which party's in power, then we're all suffering. And, and, and you know, if you ever want to see them agree on anything, just bring up the issue of salaries and pensions. Then they're all in the same, of the same mindset. I just want to remind you that the national carbon tax is being imposed, of course, on provinces that decided they were not going to play ball with the federal government and its carbon tax, and specifically most affected recently been the province of Saskatchewan, province of Alberta, province of Ontario, province of New Brunswick. We've spoken to the premiers of all of those provinces on this program. And I want to remind you that Australia in 2014, when the Australian federal government dumped its carbon tax, its national carbon tax in 2014, they did it for the following reasons. And this is directly quoting the Australian government website, environment.gov.au backslash climate change backslash government backslash repealing carbon tax. First reason, reduce the cost of living. Second reason, lower retail electricity by around 9% and retail gas prices by about 7%. 
Third reason, boost Australia's economic growth, increase jobs, and enhance Australia's international competitiveness by removing an unnecessary tax which hurts businesses and families. Fourth reason, reduce annual ongoing compliance costs for another 370 liable entities uh, by almost $90 million per annum. And the fifth or the last reason was remove over 1,000 pages of primary and subordinate legislation, so a thousand pages of law. That is from a Government of Ontario, Government of Ontario, Government of Australia website in 2014 when they decided after two years with it, they were going to get rid of their national carbon tax. Well, the Montreal Economic Institute, and we like talking to them because they do some, uh, do surveys and do studies that, that matter to, to the people of this country, not just people of Quebec or Montreal. And a study by the Montreal Economic Institute concludes carbon taxes, uh, this, governments need to go back to the drawing board. Three fundamental requirements for a carbon tax or carbon market to be efficient are not being met. Joining us is Germain Belzile, Senior Associate Researcher with the Montreal Economic Institute. We've had the pleasure of speaking with Mr. Belzile on two occasions now. He's written an op-ed on this, and you can find it on the MEI website. Monsieur Belzile, thank you very much for the time. Well, thank you very much for having me again. So let's talk about uh, the, the three specific reasons, facts, that you found out in the study with the MEI where the, where the carbon taxes fall uh, down as far as performing what they're supposed to f- perform is concerned. And I just, well, want to, I just want to quote from this. Uh, first, such a policy should be fiscally neutral. So let's start with that. Okay, well, fiscally neutral means that uh, uh, if the government gets uh, $2 billion per year, for example, uh, with this uh, carbon tax, well, it should decrease other taxes that are harmful, uh, such as the personal income tax or the corporate uh, income tax also, uh, uh, by the same amount, so that it doesn't become a tax grab. And this is not the case in Canada. Uh, In fact, the federal government is uh, a tax is uh, uh, not as bad as uh, the, uh, the, the tax in, uh, in provinces, for example, in B.C. and in Quebec. It's uh, simply, uh, simply said it's a tax grab. Uh, so that's the first condition. It should be uh, fiscally neutral. Okay, so the second one I read is uh, the taxing of greenhouse gases should replace all other policies that have the same objectives, such as regulation of emissions and subsidies for green energy. Where do they fall down on this? Well, they fall down, uh, all the governments, federal and provincial, uh, that have a plan, fall uh, down completely. In fact, the idea of a, t- a carbon tax is to put a tax on carbon, and after that, you let people um, uh, adapt to this tax by changing their behavior. And so you don't have to add a layer of regulations and subsidies. In fact, these uh, regulations and subsidies create distortions in the market, and that's very bad. Uh, in fact, the carbon tax has an advantage here, but the tax must be there and let it work and let it uh, be uh, there, stand it, uh, let it stand alone. And uh, in fact, we have thousands and thousands of pages, pages of regulations concerning uh, GHG emissions. And uh, most governments give out uh, dole out subsidies in the millions of dollars each year. And these subsidies are very, very inefficient. They don't uh, do the job, they cost a lot of money for a very little result. So they cloud what they're not supposed to cloud. They create some uh, uh, diversion. Now, third is a carbon tax should take into account, I'm reading directly from uh, your op-ed and from the MEI report or release, a carbon tax should take into account whether our neighbors and competitors have a similar policy. We know they don't. We absolutely, uh, and that's fundamental. Uh, if we have a high carbon tax and our neighbors and competitors don't have one, well, some firms will simply uh, uh, close. Uh, tr- uh, production will be transferred to other jurisdictions in which there's no tax, and uh, the end result will be uh, well just as much GHG emissions as before, but they'll be done elsewhere than in Canada. So we might be doing some virtue signaling here by uh, uh, seeming to be uh, really in envir- environmentally sound, but in fact the end result is nil, and, but uh, there's still one effect, and that will be simply become uh, poorer and poorer. 
And neither the federal, I don't like the sound of that, poorer and poorer, but we are headed in that direction. Um, so, and neither the federal carbon tax nor the provincial carbon taxes where they exist are, are, are scoring where they should on those three points. Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, in fact, they have to go to the back to the drawing board. And if they want to reduce GHG emissions, there's a clear consensus among, among economists. Uh, in fact, uh, that it, the best way is a carbon tax, but there are, uh, there's a way to do it. And uh, the governments here are not uh, doing, it, doing it the right way. Do they realize this? Um, uh, personally, I believe that uh, they're playing to their constituents, the people who vote for them. Uh, so the people who uh, want a high tax or high carbon tax are either uh, either they have a lot of money or they haven't thought out uh, everything or uh, they live in cities and they uh, they don't they don't have a car and all, they don't commute and and all the rest so i think that uh, the the present plan is probably popular amongst uh, a certain percentage of percentage of the population but we'll see how it turns out uh, with the next federal election in fact and i i i have the impression that a lot of people are very un- unhappy with the plan right now. Uh, I get that impression too, <laughs> just from the conversations we have on the air and the, and the emails and the tweets that I see. Monsieur Belgiel, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for the time today. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. Bye-bye. Bye. Germain Belgiel from the Montreal Economic Institute. So none of them have got it right. None of them. Not the federal government, not the provincial governments where they have the uh, carbon taxes. They're not scoring on the points that needed to be addressed and are fundamental as far as the MEI study is concerned. And uh, number one, such a policy should should be fiscally neutral. Second, the taxing of GHGs should replace all other policies that have the same objective. And thirdly, a carbon tax should take into account whether our neighbors and competitors have a similar policy. Why doesn't that make sense? I uh, was reading a, a story on uh, Global News the other day. Why is Congo's deadly Ebola outbreak spreading so quickly? And it is. The World Health Organization has... Uh, Uh, declared that 1,571 people are dead already from uh, Ebola in the Democratic Republic of Congo, making it the second largest in history, the outbreak. And reading from uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, their summary is the Democratic Republic of Congo declared their 10th outbreak of Ebola in 40 years on the 1st of August of last year. The outbreak is centered in the northeast of the country, with the number of cases passing 1,000. It's now by far the country's largest ever Ebola outbreak. It's also the second biggest Ebola epidemic ever recorded behind the West Africa outbreak of 2014. And the World Health Organization is refusing to declare what's going on as a global health emergency, which they also refuse to do, if memory serves. As I said earlier, in 2014, when it became a great international concern with billions of dollars spent to stop the Ebola um, outbreak. With us, back with us on the program, from Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, is Trish Newport, coordinators of MSF Ebola-related activities in the DRC, and uh, she's one of us, she's Canadian, actually joining us from Geneva. Uh, Trish, uh, what's the situation now in the Democratic Republic of Congo concerning the Ebola outbreak? Would you define it as, as serious, sufficiently serious? The World Health Organization should be more officially and directly concerned? Well, I would definitely consider it serious. It's a really concerning situation for so many reasons. You know, now there's more than 2,300 cases of Ebola that have been reported. The outbreak started, it was declared August 1st last year. So it has been almost a year that the outbreak has been going on. As you said, there have been over 1,500 deaths. Um, and what's really concerning is a few weeks ago, the, the Democratic Republic of the Congo declared a measles outbreak at the same time. So in some places, there's measles at the same time as Ebola. So this poor country and this poor population having to deal with more than one outbreak of a deadly disease at the same time, it's extremely concerning. And the threat globally 
Uh, if we look back to 2014, some people may think, well, 1,500 deaths, uh, that's, that's not that much. You know, that's a small number. It's not a small number, and the implications of those numbers are significant. If it spreads into, uh, and I was watching a, a special the other night, I think it was Beyond the Hot Zone, and they were talking about what if it spread to Nigeria and to Lagos, a city of 25 million. From there, it's global, fast. Um, is it as serious as 2014, and should the World Health Organization be doing more, saying more, declaring more? Well, it, it, I mean, it is extremely serious. One of the reasons that we think there hasn't been the same rapid spread as there was in West Africa is because we have a, a vaccine to use this time, which is an amazing tool to be able to use. Um, and so many people have been vaccinated. One of the concerns is how many vaccines are left. Um, because the vaccine is, is a really important tool to make sure that the spread is contained. Earlier this week, there was a case that was confirmed in a place called Ariwara. So it was a woman from Benin, where the outbreak has been happening since the beginning. Um, a woman from there whose two children had died of Ebola. She went to Ariwara. And Ariwara is just 45 kilometers south of South Sudan and is right on the Ugandan border. So she fell sick. She went into a hospital where she was isolated. She died a few days later, and then she was confirmed positive for Ebola. So this is extremely concerning, and it's a great example of how Ebola can spread. So she had over 200 contacts, and a contact means someone that is in close contact with the person and is at risk of getting Ebola. Mm -hmm. So we're responding the best that we can. We are setting up surveillance systems, setting up isolations for future people that might get sick. Um, but it, I feel like it's a perfect example of the risk of spread of this disease um, because it's right next to these countries. Yeah. And uh, we, you, we and I spoke last time about internal warring in the country coupled with centuries-old customs concerning the disposition of the dead compounding the challenge. You have groups fighting each other, uh, literally, to the death, and uh, MSF has had to close one of its facilities because of that. Yeah, in, in February, we were running two Ebola treatment centers in Butembo and in Katwa. One had 96 beds, one had 50 beds. They were extremely busy. And then on February 24th, the treatment center in Katwa was attacked, um, burned to the ground, so we couldn't use it anymore. The poor patients that were inside, they had to be transferred in the night to the Butembo treatment center. And then on February 27th, Three days later, that center was also attacked, and it was it, we weren't able to use it anymore, um, which was extremely scary for the patients, for the for the staff. And at that point, we didn't know why the attacks were happening. We didn't know who was responsible. We didn't know why they happened. And because we couldn't ensure the security of our staff or our patients, we ended up we ended up leaving that area. Right. Um, and that's a really hard decision to do. It, in the middle no, of break right in the hot spot. I understand that. And this is something that is, uh, if we look back to 2014 and we consider what's going on now in 2019, it started in August of last year. This is not something yeah. to, not, 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 we can't take our eye off the ball on this. Trish Newport, thank you very much for joining us. Always, uh, always very insightful. Thank you, Trish. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Bye-bye. Trish Newport, Bye. coordinator of... Uh, MSF, Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, of their Ebola-related activities in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Let's keep an eye on that. They took their eye off it in 2014. A destructive 7.1 Richter-scale earthquake in California followed the 6.4 quake of a few days ago. And uh, I was just reading that there's uh, predicted a 5 to 10% chance of an even stronger quake in the next days. I don't know if that's accurate or not. And then there's the question whether British Columbia should have concerns. There was the offshore quake in B.C. on Wednesday of last week, which I believe was eventually uh, established at 6.3 on the scale. Dr. John Cassidy, research scientist and international earthquake specialist with the Geological Survey of Canada. John, good to have you with us. We always call at times when the world is literally shaking. Well, th thank you, Roy. Uh, it's always a pleasure to, to speak with you. What's going on? 
Uh, well, California has experienced uh, the largest earthquakes in about 20 years, so they're not surprising earthquakes because we've seen much larger in, in, in Southern California and Northern California in the past, but certainly it's been quiet over the past few decades, and uh, these two earthquakes of the past couple of days certainly remind us um, uh, you know, that California is a very active earthquake zone. Is there something more severe uh, potentially on the horizon over the next days or weeks? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. Um, th- there's always the potential for for a larger earthquake to occur. It's a very it's a small percentage. It's uh, you know on the order of five percent perhaps probability of a larger earthquake occurring. The most likely scenario is, and, and we know that aftershocks as, as have been occurring over the past hours and days, um, aftershocks will certainly continue. And the most likely scenario by far is that the aftershocks will decrease over time. They will become smaller. They will become less frequent. Um, that's the most likely scenario that uh, the aftershocks that are occurring will will slow down and, and become smaller, but certainly they will continue and, and can be expected um, over the coming days and, and likely even weeks. And, and that's a very difficult scenario because it's very frightening after living through a large earthquake or, or two large earthquakes and then feeling this almost constant ground shaking. Mm-hmm. I, I follow you on Twitter, at uh, EarthquakeGuy, I like that, by the way. Earthquake guy. (laughs) Thank you. Very informal. (laughs) And it's great. It tells the story. But you tweeted seismic waves from tonight's M6.9 Southern California earthquake have rolled across Canada from Vancouver Island to Newfoundland and all points between. So, question is, do these quakes off the California or in California, do they have uh, the potential for rolling significantly into, let's say, British Columbia, part of the Cascadia um, zone. Uh, And did that quake on Wednesday offshore in B.C., does it tie in with what's going on in California? Yeah. um, The the offshore B.C. earthquakes aren't linked in any way to the California events. They're simply too far apart and very different uh, tectonics and different fault systems. So there, there's no no connection between those other than both British Columbia and California are, are a part of this major plate boundary between the Pacific plate and the North American plate. So that's sort of the common link. Um, and, and both areas do experience earthquakes uh, virtually every every single day, you know, tiny earthquakes that aren't being felt. But uh, in British Columbia, we have about 3,000 earthquakes each and every year, so they're happening all the time. And similarly in California, many more earthquakes, so they're, they're happening every day. Um, the, um, the, the waves from the California earthquake uh, are certainly easily recorded by our our national seismic network um, across the country so we can record these waves um, but they don't they, they certainly weren't felt in Canada for for this earthquake and and we wouldn't expect to see any any influence on our local fault systems um, the one one thing that we have discovered over the past um, uh, 10 years or so is that as waves from very large distant earthquakes pass through a region, there is the potential, and, and we have seen very tiny earthquakes being triggered, even in Canada, from large earthquakes um, elsewhere in the world. And that's simply that as those waves are rolling through, if, if a region uh, that experiences earthquakes is, is is very close to failure, then you may see these, what we've seen are very tiny earthquakes that haven't been felt by anyone, but um, again, can be recorded. So so we're still learning about um, earthquakes here in Canada and, and then around the world, um, but it, it appears that there's the potential as these large waves pass through a region for tiny earthquakes to be triggered at the time the waves are rolling through the area. Okay, so when people ask at a time like this, and it's natural to be concerned because we've all heard the stories, and much of Canada is in earthquake zones, correct? Yeah. Uh, if, if, if people on the West Coast, and if, if the residents of British Columbia particularly, uh, you know, have their ears perked and they, they're paying very close attention, 
And, and then you hear the words, the big one is, does any of this in any way potentially connect? With, I'm not trying to scare people, but does anybody, does this in any way connect with a potential so-called big one? Uh, no, we wouldn't expect any any uh, any connection here. We, we know that, for example, those California earthquakes will uh, will generate aftershocks in the immediate area. So that fault that ruptured was about 50 or 60 kilometers long. So there'll be over that sort of 50 to 100 kilometer uh, radius region. We will see aftershocks. We'll see the potential for for. Um, triggered earthquakes as the stress, crustal stresses have changed in, in the immediate area. Uh, but once you're several hundred kilometers away, and certainly here in British Columbia, about 1,500 kilometers away from, from that earthquake, uh, the, 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 there's, there's no, no stress, no strain. There's nothing that would have influenced our, our local uh, fault situation. Oh, that's great to know. You literally are the calm after the storm. <laughs> <laughs> John, it's always great talking to you, and, uh, and and thank you so much. You've provided us over the years with so much very helpful insight into uh, the realities of earthquakes and when they happen. I think a lot of us just go back to our mental file folder when we find John Cassidy. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> well, it's always a pleasure talking with you, Roy, and these are always uh, you know, a great opportunity to remind people that, uh, that you know, where earthquakes occur and um, being prepared is so important and knowing, knowing what to expect. Exactly. Thank you, John. All the very best. Bye-bye. Dr. John Cassidy on the Roy Green Show on the Corus Radio Network, research scientist and international earthquake specialist with the Geological Survey of Canada. On Twitter earlier today, I came across a number of uh, tweets from Justice Canada, E-N, as in English, and um, there was also a very observant Twitter member at Sean Bingley, who challenged um, Justice Canada, and then our good friend David Fraser, privacy lawyer in uh, in Canada at uh, McInnes Cooper in Halifax, and um, David uh, tweeted that uh, you should to uh, to Justice Canada, you should not be deleting your tweets. They are public record. Now, let me just read you what what they what they tweeted initially. It's summertime and the living is easier. Whether you're sitting on a patio or having a backyard barbecue, remember it's against the law to have a blood alcohol concentration over prohibited levels within two hours of driving. Know the limits. And then there was a follow-up saying after after uh, at uh, the, uh, the the Twitter member challenged them, then Justice Canada came back with we wanted to clarify the facts around a tweet that was issued yesterday relating to the two-hour rule under the new alcohol impaired driving laws. These laws are to keep our roads safer and save lives. Find out dot dot dot. And uh, Sean at Sean Bingley tweeted back to Justice Canada, what do you mean clarify? Your tweet yesterday said the opposite of what you're tweeting today. Which is it? If you don't understand this ridiculous law. And uh, David Fraser, privacy lawyer, tweeted, you should not be leading your tweets. There are public, these are public records. And it's at privacy lawyer on Twitter. And David Fraser joins us from Nova Scotia. <laughs> hi, Roy. How are you? Hi, David. They blundered into one. This one, didn't they? <laughs> well, it's it's a it's a weird and maybe a little bit complicated, but maybe it's actually simpler than they think. Rule. So they've uh, so there were amendments that were made to the criminal code that made it illegal to a criminal offense, so an actual criminal offense, to have a blood alcohol content of over 0. 0.08 within two hours of driving. So on its face. You go home, you've had a hard day, whatever, sit down, you have a bottle of wine or half a bottle of wine with your spouse, you're over the limit, it's within two hours of driving, you have committed a criminal offense. What they did was that they created a defense, and so you kind of get out of jail or or kind of get away with it, if you can prove that your drinking was innocent in the meantime, which is an incredibly absurd idea in a whole bunch of ways just kind of factually, but also when it comes to the way that our charter works, usually you don't have a positive obligation to prove something like that. So if the law is about impaired driving, 
you can be impaired driving without being impaired and driving. And so it's, it's ridiculous in, in a whole bunch of ways, but it puts it back on the individual. And we all know that if somebody is charged with an offense, they might have a defense, like they might be able to explain it away, but if they're charged with an offense, that becomes a matter of public record. And when it comes to things like intoxicated driving, that is a pretty stigmatizing label that can be attached to people. So while they tried to deal with a real issue, which is, for example, people who said, oh, yeah, I drank a whole lot in the bar, I wasn't drunk yet when I drove home, and by the time I got home, oh, that's when I was drunk. Or other people who, for example, get into a car accident and kill somebody, God forbid, um, and then pull a Mickey out of their pocket and quickly chug it in order to kind of confuse any, any readings in the meantime. They've really gone completely overboard in dealing with those two pretty narrow and relatively rare pieces of mischief. And it seems uh, by this, this, these two tweets from Justice Canada, E-N, as in English, that they recognize how much of a contentious point this is. And they've also lost a case. We spoke with a British Columbia resident, Nanaimo, who had exactly that happen to her. Five RCMP officers appeared on the door, and her car was impounded, and her driver's license was suspended. She had to go to court, and it cost her $3,500 to get the, the, the action by the police overturned. You know, anybody could... David Fraser's driving home. Roy Green's driving home. I don't know. Maybe you've made somebody angry. Maybe I've made somebody angry. They recognize us. The car we drive, they call the police, and they say, I think that guy was drunk and we've gone home on a hot summer night we've had a, a beer or two beers over two hours and and we blow close to or over and now we're in trouble even though we weren't drinking while we were driving yep. yeah and, and if the mischief they're trying to go after which is often what you focus on when it comes to law really like what are you trying to deal with yeah if it's people who are impaired when they're driving yes then we need evidence about impairment when driving if you're also concerned about people who have taken steps in order to obscure the evidence by subsequent driving, then it should be up to the police and the prosecutors to prove that. Or certainly kind of the, the science on alcohol consumption and alcohol metabolism, I think is relatively settled. And so a, a little bit more of a nuanced approach might actually lead to the thing that they want to do. And also this is being confused with the amendments that were made to the criminal code that give the police the ability to require a bodily sample, your breath or your blood, just on a whim, without any kind of reasonable suspicion. And so their first tweet was about, hey, everybody, hey, cool kids, uh, if, you, if you consume alcohol within two hours of driving, you're a criminal. And then they corrected it, quote unquote, corrected it to say that, hey, look, nobody can come, a cop can't come to your house and require one of these suspicionless um, breath samples. But what they can do, if they have reasonable grounds to suspect, they can require it. And kind of the scenario that you laid out where somebody has a grudge against you and calls the cops, that's enough reasonable grounds to suspect. And, and they, can, they can require a breath sample. And if you say no, then just the saying no is a criminal offense and you have no defense to that. Or if you blow over, then you have to prove that you had no reasonable grounds to believe that somebody might ask you for a breath sample. Now, if you know that some idiot is on your case and is going to report you at every turn, um, you always have reasonable grounds to believe that you might get pulled over at any time. Mm -hmm. And so it really is. It's a completely disproportionate response that has a significant impact on the civil liberties of, of ordinary Canadians um, who kind of are just going, going about their lives and are not representing any real risk of harm to the public by impaired driving, which, of course, impaired driving, when it actually happens, presents a significant risk. Of course it does. But as, as you pointed out, and when I called you this morning and asked you to come on the show to talk about this today and what was going on on Twitter, you pointed out quite correctly uh, what remains on the public record is the charge. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's what so the, so, so, so the person in, in so, the hallway outside the courtroom, and that's what gets reported on. Yeah. And that's incredibly stigmatizing. Yeah. So let's go. Let's say you apply for a job somewhere. And uh, you think you're fine because this situation happened some time ago and it was resolved. Maybe you paid some money to get it resolved in court. Uh, but, but, but it's still there. And your prospective employer sees a charge uh, for drunk driving. There goes the job. Yeah, and, and, and that kind of criminal record check and criminal background checks are a whole other topic. In some provinces, 
they only get information about convictions. So if you weren't convicted, that's not going to show up. But in some provinces, they get information about charges. But of course, everybody Googles, everybody, well, I suppose some people Bing and some people use Yahoo. Um, And if it was ever reported on, that's what's going to show up. And certainly I've heard from individuals who have kind of never gotten the callbacks from jobs that they're qualified for because there's adverse information that shows up in social media or other searches. So you can't be exposed to a lottery like that. I think it's deeply problematic, and and I I think ultimately it will be found to be unconstitutional. Uh, But in the meantime, there's going to be a significant amount of collateral damage. So uh, thank you, uh, David, for reminding uh, Justice Canada that once once you have it up there, it's kind of there. You can delete it, but it's still going to show up. I've actually been impressed by the number of people who have pointed out kind of saved copies of that particular tweet in in Yeah. And I managed to make one myself. That's a keeper. For my scrapbook. That's a keeper. Uh, David (laughs) Fraser, privacylawyer.ca, and the Canadian Privacy Law Blog. Thank you, David. We'll talk again. You take care. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. Roy Green Show on the Coros Radio Network. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.